This is the Theo-Imagination Podcast, a podcast about God, faith, and faithful imagination. I'm your host, Phil Odd. Hey everyone, thanks for your patience with the extended break that I've taken, but we are back with season two of the Theo Imagination podcast. I've got some exciting guests lined up this season, and I've just launched a Facebook group where we can talk about some of the topics on the show, and we'll at times have follow-up conversations with guests from the show. Speaking of guests, Today, I am joined by Dr. Wynn Collier. Wynn is the author of five books and currently serves as the Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Christian Imagination and the Director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary. Wynn has written a stunning book called A Burning in My Bones, which is the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson. Sometimes people ask me, who are your theological influences? And it's a hard question in some ways because I'm influenced by different people, new people all the time, but I always bring up two names when people ask me this because they got me started on my theological journey. One is N.T. Wright, the other is Eugene Peterson. I'd been assigned a book of Peterson's in college a lifetime ago, but I wasn't that great of a student back then, so I probably just perused it at 2 a.m. or something. But after I graduated, I really started to read, and eventually I got my hands on Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. I was just blown away, so I ordered and read, eat this book, and then The Jesus Way, and then Tell It Slant, and then Practice Resurrection, and then I went back and read the book from college, Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work. I think I've read 14 of Peterson's books, not including the message, and am deeply indebted to his influence, both in terms of what it means to be a pastor, but also in terms of being introduced to great theologians and authors and poets. Peterson started me on a journey. So, Wynn Collier had a daunting task in writing the biography of a giant such as Peterson. Not only that, but Peterson had written a memoir called The Pastor less than a decade ago. But this biography is by no means a regurgitation of stories previously told, but it is a weaving together of a life in a beautiful and pedagogical narrative. If you've been on the fence about getting this book because you've read The Pastor, Get off the fence and order the book. I have not met a single person who's read it and hasn't been deeply moved by it. This is a two-part interview, and the second half, which is my favorite half, if I'm honest, though I like them both, will be out soon. But if you can't wait, the unedited video interview is in the Theo Imagination Facebook group. One last thing. For some reason, I've had some issues in transmission with Wynn's mic on occasion in this interview. It gets better as the conversation goes on, but my apologies. Anyway, here is part one of the interview. I hope you enjoy. I am joined today by Wynn Collier. And, you know, I connected with you, goodness, quite some time ago because I had seen that you were writing this book on Eugene Peterson. I've, I've been such a fan. I've been deeply immersed in a lot of his work. And so as soon as I saw your book, I reached out and like, can I read this? And can we talk about this? So since that time, you've actually made a transition. You were pastoring, was it in Virginia? That's right. Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah. I saw a few of your services on, uh, a few of your Zoom services I snuck in on. So but you were there and you've moved to Holland, Michigan, and you're the Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Christian Imagination, and also the Director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. So that's a new transition for you just this year, right? 
Yeah, that's right. We moved here in August, so right in the middle of the pandemic. And my sister actually lives in Michigan. So we've been here a fair bit over the past couple of decades, but never expected that I would live here. But here we are. And so many possibilities with the seminary and some exciting things happening with the Peterson Center. It's something that I'm feeling a lot of joy around. Mm, it's amazing. Um, you know, before we jump into your biography of Eugene Peterson, which is just stunning, by the way, I, I thought this was a, it was a work worthy of Peterson. And I wonder if you could tell me a bit about your relationship with the Petersons. As a biographer, you got out of the way really quickly and you did what you set out to do in the book. But my curiosity throughout the book was piqued about your connection with the family. Um, it was obvious from your brief preface that, that you knew the Petersons somehow before you set out to write the biography. So I'm curious how you know the Petersons and um, how that relationship might have deepened or changed as you set out to tell the story of Eugene's life. Well, in two we moved to Denver, Colorado, my wife to go to grad school. And I was a bivocational pastor of a small church. I was working for Charles Schwab as a stockbroker and pastoring this small church. And one of the elders of the church on a Sunday handed me a copy of Eugene's Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. Mm -hmm. And he said, when I, I think you'll enjoy this. And I now know what he actually meant was, when I think you need this. <laughs> and I had been struggling for years um, trying to trying to understand what it really meant to be a pastor. And I had come out of a church situation where it was very disillusioning with a pastor that I had worked under. And I was just trying to, to understand what this work was about. And I was on paragraphs in, and it just smote my heart. It opened something up deep inside me. I felt like I, I had a language that was all of a sudden there and pregnant and ready. Um, and I was just ready for it. And so I began to read. Eugene. And a couple of years later, my first book was being published by one of Eugene's publishers. And I got them to give me Eugene's address. And I wrote him a letter in Montana. Hmm. He wrote back. And I was, you know, one of those unique people who was writing Eugene. Later, I would literally thousands of letters in my cellar that I was working through. I realized I wasn't unique at all. And uh, eventually, he and his son, Eric, were preaching a spiritual weekend at a, at a small Presbyterian Church in Juneau, Alaska. I had a friend who lived in Juneau, was going to be gone, offered their place for me for a pastoral retreat. So I went and hmm. sat in that little Presbyterian church and listened to Eric and Eugene and had a meal with Eugene at his hotel. And, and just we just continued to write letters. And in 2016, I went to visit him when I was on another retreat in uh, Montana. And it was just really obvious that his health was declining and that he was pulling things in close and I didn't expect that I'd see him again. But on the flight back, I started thinking about how someone was going to write his story. And I started having this deep sense of what I hoped would happen with his story, how it would be brought to life and that it would be more about imbibing who Eugene was, not just about sort of getting the facts down. And uh, I ended up writing him a letter mm. and talking about what I would hope for his story. And I, and I knew he he didn't give a, a flying hoot about having a biography writ written about him, but you know it was going to happen someday. And, and so uh, he called me a couple weeks later. We talked about it some more. And at the end of that conversation, I said, so Eugene, does this I idea give you energy or does it make you tired? And he said, when it makes me tired. Um, 
so I, I just assumed that was the end of the conversation. But for, for some reason, we just kept talking. And about 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, he said, when I think I have energy now, I think you're supposed to do this. Mm. So he and Jan just folded me into their life. Um, spent a lot of time with them at the lake over the next couple of years, lugging boxes and suitcases full of letters and journals and manuscripts back to Virginia and praying to God that there was no fire or flood in the basement of my house and I be responsible for losing all this material. And so it was, wow. it was one of the most daunting things I've ever done to embark on this, but it also was a place of real beauty. And just, I'm really so grateful to have been able to, to steward the story. You uh, stewarded it very well. You know, did anything surprise you as you were writing this and as you kind of dug into the, the material, the letters, the journals, whatnot? I'm not sure that I would say anything surprised me, but there were definitely moments that caught me off guard mm. in his journals. Um, you know, first of all, I don't really know that he ever expected somebody to be reading these. <laughs> I even struggled with that a bit, you know, and really toward the end when his health was really declining, it wasn't just wasn't really a space where I could scratch with him really deeply in some of these areas. But there was a, just an honesty and there was a prayer that he prayed multiple times, just a line. And it's the kind of thing that you would never have heard him say in any other space other than in his own private journal. But I remember the first time I, I read him say in his journal, Lord, make me a saint. Mm. And that's just one of those things heard in the wrong way, said by the wrong person at the wrong time. Right. That could hit you in a real overly pious, self-absorbed way. But it was a deep cry of his heart that mm. what he really longed for was to be transformed by the love of Christ in a way that so integrated who he was as a human that um, he was a different kind of person. I think that that line just encapsulated, you know, there was some apprehension digging into his journals of like, you know, am I going to find out he's really not the person that we thought he was? <laughs> um, and his own, his own prayer multiple times was, God, help me be the man that people think I am. Um, which also felt so honest. Yeah, yeah. But that prayer that God would make him a saint, especially understanding what he understood a saint to be, which is a very human person transformed by Christ, it brought tears to my eyes because I thought that that the real Eugene, that's really what he longed for. And there were, you know, moments of things he would say about other well-known, you know, Christian folks or political opinions and, you know, all, all of his people just thought he was merely a gentle person. And a lot of that I think was him trying to mortify the things in him that weren't gentle. Um, and, uh, so there was definitely some of that kind of stuff, but I think the deeper things was how saturated he was with God. I want to return to the issue of him being a saint in just a minute. But one of the things that did catch my attention throughout the book was actually Peterson's relationship with ambition. Hmm. Um, and this appeared early on at Seattle Pacific University, where Peterson carried, as, as you wrote, a burning question, which was, how do I become the student body president of this place? Yeah. Um, the last word that comes to mind when I think of Eugene Peterson is ambition because he was kind of a, a prophet against it in some senses. But I was really curious about his relationship or, you know, maybe struggle with ambition throughout his life um, that seemed to kind of pop up at various points. So how would you talk about Peterson's ambition? Was it a struggle? Um, was it something that he kind of shed along the way? That part, I, I was quite interested in that. Yeah, well, it probably 
be a mistake to think that Eugene just fell out of the womb as this contemplative prophet who was monk-like and I mean, he was a he was a high class athlete. Um, he didn't run, you know, merely to to feel God's pleasure, <laughs> you know, like chariots of fire. Yeah, sure. Um, he ran because he liked to accomplish things and he liked to win. Yeah. Um, when he went to Seattle Pacific, yeah, he wanted to be top dog, um, mm. and in some ways became that. I mean, he was very well thought of and a leader in seminary. He was he he had really good grades. He studied languages. Um, with some of the top Semitic scholars of right. his era. And when he became a pastor at Christ our King, you know, his convictions, for those of us who are pastors and have, have been so deeply challenged by his his witness, things that were hard won, they were because he faced the demons mm-hmm. of finding his identity in the kind of church he would build and wanting to be the person who accomplished great things, you know, air quotes, in the name of God. <laughs> um, right, yeah. Yeah, and so... Uh, Yes, his convictions about about ambition were not theoretical. Right. You know, he would say that the twin evil temptations for pastors are ambition and boredom. Hmm. And I think he was someone who struggled with ambition and boredom and so he stepped into that and he he did battle with it and he became someone who could see it clearly in himself. And so he wasn't speaking to to those others out there who struggle with these things. He was working out his own salvation. Mm-hmm. I think he talked about his running um, in the past, or as I recall. And around the same time that I read that, I read Hannah's Child by Stanley Hauerwas. And Hauerwas also talked about his running. And I thought, yeah, yeah. I thought, this is interesting. What I had read like a few thinkers around that time who spoke about the running and actually really glad that you dealt with that in the book. You had written that ambitious energy could be good, but as fuel for his life as a pastor, ambition wrecked his soul. Running and eventually training for races allowed him to burn that competitiveness. Uh, and I thought that, that was really, there's a lot of wisdom in that, I think, of sometimes it's not just shedding, I guess, you're leaving something behind, but dealing with it in the right way. Um, so, yeah, I love kind of reading about his running, his writing practices. Um, I thought all that was quite fascinating, actually. Yeah. And he, you know, he wrote 39 books. Um, <laughs> you don't do that if you're merely a passive bystander to your life. Yeah. So I think like like so many things that Eugene waded into, I think he was trying to help us deepen our language. Um, Mm. It'd be too simple to just throw away everything that ambition stands for. But he also felt like, particularly in the North American context, and particularly in the church world, that uh, we've taken the very worst of things like ambition and baptized them in spiritual language, and it's destroying us. I was also interested in some of the names that came up, maybe not always unrelated, but yeah, I was quite surprised as I was looking through and I saw early on that Eugene was friends with like Pat Robertson, for example. Yeah. And then I've just loved the idea that loved and hated actually uh, Frederick Beekner. <laughs> I'm like, he never met Beekner, but amazingly, they it appears that they were both in the congregation at the moment that Beekner writes about in, in a couple of his books where George uh, Buttrick's words, among confession and tears and great laughter, actually changed Beekner's life. And it's like, Peterson was there with that, you know. And it's funny how a relationship at times can really shift a person's destiny. But you had written that Peterson had these deep longings in his soul. And you, you said that this longing is why Eugene 
could know all kinds of VIP figures, but never have much to say about any of them, which is true because it's like the first time that I was reading them was, was in your book. You know, as you look back over his life, um, were there figures that stood out? Who were the figures, I guess, who stood out to you most just in your research and whatnot that shaped him really deeply? Well, certainly his mother. Hmm. I think that relationship was immensely profound in so many ways. Yeah. You know, in some ways, his dad, uh, the positive side was he never left the fact that he was a Montanan who was a butcher's son. Hmm. And I just don't think you can understand Eugene apart from the Flathead Valley and being a butcher's son. Hmm. There was something about the the tangible grittiness of that, the being yeah. close to people, literally having your your hands up to your elbows, knee deep in the work. Eugene always felt most drawn to the very common person. He didn't love mm. being in environments that were considered elite. So those things were very formative. If you start moving beyond that, you know, he was one of the most well-read persons I've ever encountered. I mean, his library was massive and mm. he really, he read the canon in so many directions. Mm. So his, it's almost like who didn't influence him in a way, but for the yeah, deepest yeah. influences, I definitely think you would go back. You would go certainly Bart. I mean, Bart was hugely influential to him, but he would say less about what Bart actually said and more about how Bart did what he did. Hmm. I think there was something about the way Bart in a in an almost renegade way was so focused and attentive on God. He kept saying, speaking God into theology <laughs> as if we would have to do such a thing. Hmm. But um but that Bart didn't take himself all that seriously. And I think Eugene found that really attractive. Um, and he was going to write a book on him, wasn't he? And never did? Well, he was supposed to give a lecture at Princeton. It, it oh, got okay. pushed okay. off several years and then ultimately ended up being Eugene's last public lecture, though it was delivered after he died by Eric, by his son. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was at the mm -hmm. seminary there. The Scottish divine pastor, um, Alexander White, there's a biography written about him that was also very formative for Eugene. I think in yeah. some ways, what Eugene was for a lot of, of us pastors, uh, Alexander White was for was for Eugene. And, mm, yeah. And then, you know, there's just a, a myriad of other voices. And Dostoevsky was hugely influential for Eugene. Right. You know, he loved Wendell Berry, Denise Levertov. Um, the, the list really goes mm. on and on. I loved reading about Jan throughout the book. And, you know, as you said, and, and you brought it up several times throughout that Eugene wanted to live the life of a saint. And I think he did. But I think we can say the same about Jan, actually. You know, I, I love how respected and honored she was in your book. And she seemed like such a fascinating woman, um, even from her early years. You know, the run in with Dr. King was just astounding. I love that. Love that story. And the way that God was shaping her as a, as a young woman. But when you're married to someone who sells 22 million copies of, you know, their 39 books, it's easy to feel like you're overshadowed. Um, you wrote that she felt that way and that at times she felt like she didn't have her own voice. But as I read your book, I was I was really drawn to her life as well. And I, I, I feel like you honored her so much. But um, how did she impact Eugene? How did she impact the world for that matter? Yeah. I mean, he would say that Jan really kept him grounded in a way that mm. he could get lost in his head 
until their final year, I mean, Jan would still say that Eugene was way too quiet at home. She'd be sitting at the dinner table and, and she would say, you know, she would look at Eugene and she would say, I love the man. And she'd pat his knee and say, but I sure wish he'd talk more because he just had this, you know, he yeah. just had this interior life and Jan was a social creature if there ever was one. And she mm. just loved people and loved to, to be engaged. And I also think it's, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Eugene certainly talked very much and lived an, an earthy human spirituality at the same time, he was brilliant. I mean, he gen- genuinely was brilliant. Yeah. And Jan, Jan, by nature, was the ordinary one. I mean, she mm. she didn't get caught up in the big theological ideas. She named the flowers and saw God's beauty there, you know? Mm. And so there was definitely, mm. a, yeah. at times, a tension as a result of that. But at other times, it was a real confluence of different graces that each of them brought to the marriage Mm. you know at the same time their marriage was not always it wasn't always easy and and the book goes into that there were some stretches where it was really difficult painful but they kept returning to one another yeah he he spoke of marriage as his uh school of holy love i love that and when um he wrote i want holiness but nothing tame or domesticated jan has nurtured and prayed that in us, in me. I love that so much. That was a fascinating part of the of the journey. You know, there was another, there was a line that stood out to me in the book. As you kind of go through Eugene's life, even when he was quite young, he, he had lots of interesting doors that opened up for him. And you wrote, quote, these experiences because of their richness complicated Eugene's picture of his future, end quote. That that really stood out to me because having a lot of opportunities set before you almost always looks good to others from the outside. But in truth, it can really throw your internal world into quite a bit of upheaval. So I wonder how the ways in which Eugene dealt with the various opportunities in his life informs your pastoral sense of discernment and vocation. I will say that one thing it does is I think it sort of knocks down any sort of uh high idealistic idea of how you arrive at these things. Mm. You know, Eugene loved those lines from the Denise Levertov poem about life being intently haphazard. Yeah. Eugene would say over and over again, I wasn't ever planning any of this. I was just following my nose, you know, Mm. hopefully following the spirit. He didn't really plan to be a pastor. It was something he recognized that he longed for. Um, and part of that was because he wanted to be where the action was. And he was feeling more and more like <laughs> the action was not in the academy. You know, and then being at Christ Our King for 29 years, he is a pastor of intense stability. And yet that's not because he never tried to leave. He actually did. You know, some of these things were just him living and yeah. following his his sense of desire. And um, But yeah, I mean, the big question for him was, is, was he going to go deeper into the academy and finish his PhD work at Johns Hopkins and be a Semitic scholar? Or is he going to become a pastor? Mm. And we know the choice he took. But he would say it was not, yeah. it was not something that was planned out by him very well. You, know, you mentioned you mentioned that stretch of time where he tried to leave, and so we referred to that as the Badlands. Um, one of the things that that was interesting to me about a week ago, I was telling somebody about your book, and they they were mentioning, oh, you know, one of the things I love about Peterson, and of course, I so I live in Alberta, which is just north of Montana, and they said, oh, the way he talks about land and how that informs 
um, the things that he writes about, oh, it just makes so much sense to me. And it's I've only been here three years, so it's a pretty stark difference from many of the places that I've lived. But he had a way of naming things. Place was important to him, not for nothing. You know, he really shaped even how I think of, of architecture. But when he talks about the Badlands, I think that a lot of pastors can relate to this season that he talks about, you know, almost the six years of almost like lifeless pastoring, right? And and he had written in, I think, a letter or a journal, it is a frustrating time. We feel the impulse to leave is from the Lord. But at the same time, he doesn't open up uh, where we are to leave too. And I just imagine so many pastors reading that and being like, oh, I know exactly what he's <laughs> talking about, you know? Um, yeah. Tell me a, a bit about the Badlands and and how the Petersons made it through. I, I think these stories are so encouraging for pastors. Yeah. Well, it was a long slog. It wasn't, you know, we talk about seasons. This was more than a season and it was around six years. And, you know, he made it partly, he would say, by putting one foot in front of the other. Hmm. He partly made it because God didn't release him. God didn't open up any possibilities. He made it by starting, this is the season when they started doing their annual trek back to Flathead Valley, back to Kalispell Lakeside. Right, right. That, That journey that ritual, that space was massively important, reorienting and healing to Eugene and to the entire family. Mm. He made it by, this is the season when he, he returned to running. Yeah, There was something about that exertion and that practice. And it's also the season where he returned to woodworking. Mm. His grandfather was a wonderful carpenter and had taught Eugene a lot of carpentry. And Eugene loved woodworking, made lots of furniture and made a beautiful little bassinet that the grandchildren now, even each grandchild when they're born has some time in this piece. And I think it's when he, he dug deeper into friendships with other pastors and some point around here, made some returns to Dostoevsky, found some voices that were going to speak to his heart hmm. and he just kept moving forward. Was this a season when he, uh, when he took the academic credentials off the wall and put the three pictures up? Yes. I think, th- I think that happened very early. Okay. I'm not sure how long those academic credentials were up there. I don't think it was super long. You know, again, I loved even just the the return of the practices, everything from Sabbath to carpentry, right? And the people that influenced him this time, uh, it was amazing. So that wraps part one of my interview with Wynn Collier. And we'll be back soon with part two. But why don't you head over to Facebook, check out facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the imagination. Until next time, my friends, grace and peace.